welcome to the second episode of the podcast Global Orders. Uh, this is uh, Alana O'Malley and I'm the principal investigator of the ERC project challenging the liberal world order from within the invisible history of the United Nations and the Global South. And uh, today we're going to talk to Dr. Lydia Walker, who has joined us on the project as the postdoctoral researcher, um, which we are delighted by. So um, welcome, Lydia, and welcome to the team. Thank you for having me. So um, let's just jump straight in then to uh, to the podcast. Firstly, and maybe we can just talk a little bit about that um, uh to begin with, I mean, you were you were kind of leading up this podcast, so um, maybe we should uh, try to kind of give the listeners a little bit more information about what we're going to do with the podcast and what it's intended for. Um, and it's called Global Orders. So um, in thinking about that title, um, what is the UN to you then? Is it um, a form of global order, an instrument of global order, um, or is it a reflection of different orders that exist in the world? So about, I guess, the technical end of the podcast, Global Orders, um, I'm curating it to a degree, but um, this is very much a collaboration with uh, EC, who um, will also be taking a more curatorial role later on as we start uh, producing uh, more comprehensive episodes and start talking to people who are not ourselves. Um, so this is very much a collaborative project among the Invisible Histories team, uh, and I and I would not say that I'm in charge, but I would say that um, maybe at this moment I might be uh, taking the strongest curatorial hand. About uh, global orders, um, I think the S there is quite important, um, that there are multiple ones. Um, I also wanted a term that was capacious, uh, one that uh, thought about the United Nations broadly across time and space, not as an entity that began sort of poof in 1945. Um, and, you know, we're not sure who we'll be, be talking to in the future, but it may well be uh, people whose scholarship is from earlier than that, um, that speaks to uh, the spirit of this uh, podcast. Um, when I think about the United Nations, I sort of think about it as two different entities. One is as a system of international order. Um, and here it's what makes a member state, what makes a state to a degree now, post 45, membership to the United Nations. Um, with decolonization and all these independence festivities, part of becoming independent was joining the United Nations, became sort of the seal of that independence. And uh, one of the differences we can see between the United Nations and the League of Nations is that states haven't left the UN um, yet anyway. And why don't they? Because they see it as the seal of their own belonging to an international community. It works for them. It solidifies their sovereignty. So they, there's the United Nations as this system to which states belong. Then there's the UN as a system of bureaucracies uh, based uh, in New York and Geneva. So that is when we kind of get into like the organizational bureaucratic level of the United Nations. And of course, there's feedback between the two. You know, they're not like completely separate. 
Um, but when people refer to the United Nations, they often are kind of interchanging the two different uh, entities. And I think it's important uh, for us to kind of separate them out. Let me just draw you out on one of those points a little bit more. So you talked about um, the UN as kind of a, a seal of legitimacy. Um, and for, you know, for many nations and states, the UN is really this kind of ultimate kind of proof of life, UN membership. Um, and the UN is held in quite a high regard and, and quite a high esteem. And I don't just mean this to refer to um, smaller nations who need to kind of um, secure their position or their sovereignty through the UN. Um, but also you see this um, amongst kind of large and powerful nations who place a lot of emphasis on their UN role. Um, where do you think that prestige and legitimacy really comes from historically? Um, and how has it prevailed over the last 76 years of the UN's history? Yeah, so this is quite interesting. I mean, um, I think a degree of that prestige and legitimacy comes from the United Nations as a military alliance winning the Second World War. Uh, winning a war gives you legitimacy. And then belonging to that entity, organization, system, uh, is joining the winner's circle. So I think that if we're talking historically, that a war a uh, organization that won a war and then as the victors brings people in uh, becomes, uh, you know, that's where the prestige begins. Uh, later on, um, I think there's a real social element to the United Nations. And here I'm talking about sort of uh, great powers and also uh, states, period. People, uh, representatives of entities that actually have a seat at the table at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a social element of coming to uh, New York City uh, in September. The General Assembly just met mm -hmm. uh, not too long ago. Uh, and sometimes this gets derided as a talk shop. But to a degree, uh, it's, you know, it's a set of discussions, um, a set of social engagements, even in this COVID-19 uh, environment. And uh, people want to participate in them. Why would you sort of take yourself out of that? And it gives uh, smaller countries a chance to sort of punch above their weight in international politics by uh, having uh, equal representation in the UN General Assembly. Right. Let, let me um, kind of move on a little bit and ask you um, a bit about your um, teaching. So, um, of course, at Leiden University, we try to um, encourage uh, research-based teaching as much as possible. And um, we really have a great opportunity to do this with the project because we have uh, an elective on UN history that you're teaching right now. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how your research connects to your teaching and informs your teaching, but also vice versa? So uh, last week, our session was on uh, the origins of the United Nations. And uh, one of the things I did with this course uh, when I sort of reconfigured the syllabus was to begin earlier, was to begin uh, with uh, the Hague Conventions in the, 18, in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, and the Conference of Berlin uh, in the 1880s. I did this because my sort of thesis of the class is that uh, the history of international order is really about uh, patrolling what is a regular versus irregular warfare, which is often around on colonial lines and racial lines. 
uh, depending on who uh, the adversaries are. And um, first, managing colonialism, and then eventually managing decolonization. So I wanted to begin with sort of the major conferences that articulate that. Um, though for every kind of historical answer to things, it's always, it began earlier and it's more complicated. Um, but I sort of put my cards on the table for the class. This is why we began here and where we begin is an argument. And where we begin is an argument for the United Nations. Um, and one of the arguments I always make uh, about the UN is uh, the first UN intervention is the Normandy landings. Uh, and then the second one is the Korean War. Uh, so that really creates a new chronology of UN interventions than the sort of usual one, uh, which begins in Sinai, uh, and then with the emergency force around the Suez crisis, and then of course, uh, Congo becomes the sort of crucible moment that kind of forecloses the potential of the United Nations as this sort of military aggressor, uh, not military aggressor, but as a uh, military, uh, as a uh, actual military force for managing uh, issues of major international issue, conflict issues. Um, and that narrative from Suez to Congo and then was kind of a hiatus and then we get into uh, the Balkans in the 90s and the doctrine of responsibility to protect is one of limitations of often one that's cast as failure. But if you begin with, you know, D-Day in conventional narrative making is kind of this great allied United Nations uh, military success. And if you begin with that, uh, then the history of the use of force at the United Nations looks quite different. So what I was really getting at uh, last week with my class was what does it mean to date the United Nations uh, from you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Declaration of a United Nations in 1942? Uh, that's a very different date than San Francisco after Roosevelt's death in 1945. And so can you, this is how, I, I think it's very clear then how your research informs your teaching, but what about from the other perspective? Uh, how does my teaching inform my research? Um, so one of the aspects we've been really grappling with is whether the UN is imperial or international and or international. And what does it mean to call the UN imperial versus what does it mean to call the UN international? And as I see my students grappling with those terms and trying to think them through at the practical level rather than the ideological level, and these are incredibly ideologically laden terms, especially imperial, I can see how it really is what the audience means to use with those terms. And that it can be very difficult to uh, label some, have like a set criteria for what makes something imperial versus what makes something international. And we almost have to use them more as kind of actors categories, mm -hmm. how people at the time were using those terms and to kind of embrace the ideological connotations of them and center that 
and not try to shunt them to the side and kind of um, want to come up with sort of a set criteria that is objective in our use of those terms. Yeah, I think that's very important, these different um, conceptions of the UN, you know, as imperialist or as um, post-colonialist or as uh, liberating or as kind of oppressive, um, that they have really kind of, um, if you like, tended to whitewash the whole institution with one um, perception. And I think this kind of takes away from our understandings of the intricacies, but also the the detail of what the UN is doing. And some of that detail um, is difficult to pin down, right? So, you know, one of the big things that that we're grappling with now is um, the sociological dimension of the UN. And we're not the first historians to wonder about this, but we're certainly going to try to... um, to learn more about this, um, and we know, of course, that as the as this as the UN has evolved over time and has developed its own institutional culture, um, and that this is a lot about the kind of the way that delegates, but also bureaucrats and um, NGO representatives interact within that UN environment, and not necessarily only in Geneva, New York, of course, but also in the field missions where perhaps it's even more um, important. So. I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the way that, that the social dimension of the UN has evolved over time so that it's no longer just a, a national, different national levels of um, representation blending together. Uh, and you participated as a student um, at the UN International School in New York, where, of course, um, I guess it was a very internationalist culture and internationalist environment. So how would you characterize that environment then? Yeah, so full disclosure, I went to Eunice, the United Nations International School in New York City for elementary school, uh, kindergarten uh, through grade six. So those are absolutely formative years. Um, and it's not the way uh, most Americans or most uh, New Yorkers uh, go to school. So um, one aspect there is that UN Day, which is coming up um, October 24th. Thank you. Um, is a major holiday. You get it off. (laughs) And so um, here I was um, almost forgetting the date, but uh, growing up, that was like a big holiday that no one else got off from school. And it involved, um, well, the day before that we didn't get as a holiday, it involved dressing up in your national costume and parading around the school from like room to room. Now, for an American, this was quite awkward for a degree. What was your national costume? Mm -hmm. Uh, And people would dress up as cowboys. Uh, People would dress up as uh, football players, American football players. Now, there's a whole gender dimension (laughs) here about what the national costume was tended to be uh, quite masculine. Uh, People would wear blue jeans. Um, But one of the really interesting things was how, like, look, me looking at this back later with how this kind of uh, sort of implicit American hegemony around uh, culture meant that there was no longer a, an American national costume while everybody else had theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has made me think a bit about how you can sort of characterize a UN culture because uh, Eunice, the UN school, definitely had one. Um, And in the very first paper I wrote about uh, the UN in um, graduate school, the adjective I played around with was Anusian, from ONU, the sort of French abbreviation for UN, or UNO as it used to be, the UN organization, which I always find interesting. They're 
early in the early days, they're wanting to differentiate between the UN organization and what had been the United Nations as a military alliance. So Anusian, the way one would say, you know, Dutch or American or British um, or Indian, you know, wanting to have that kind of modifier to a sort of cultural adjective. Um, but it's one that never really caught on, um, not necessarily in my own scholarship, but also UN culture hasn't really caught on. Instead, it is almost, it gets relegated to these uh, sort of enclaves like UNIS, uh, like uh, specific uh, UN missions, uh, like specific uh, UN bureaucracies, uh, but it hasn't kind of broadened out from that. And I think that's actually quite an interesting thing, that there is a UN culture, but it's not one that is usually visible to outsiders. That's yeah. And that's so fascinating because we, you know, as I said, I think everybody who looks at any international organization is always up against that kind of, um, you know, that that wall of kind of unknowing of what happens between committee meetings when people meet in the corridors and also what happens in delegates lounges and what happens in the field missions while they're talking in you know maybe in a truck on site or on the way to a site um, and it's very hard to capture that because it's not written down so um, I think it's very interesting then to understand that this internationalist culture uh, can be identified in its opposite sense you know for what it doesn't tell us about um, national cultures um, and, and just kind of sticking with that then and thinking about these different organizations organizational sites um, of the UN. You're creating a new project as part of your role in, in, in Visihist um, and thinking about the UN as uh, a device to switch between imperial and post-colonial modes of governance. Um, and you've taken a selection of issues to try to understand that switch, peacekeeping, indigenous rights and resource extraction. Um, and you want to kind of update them for post-colonial norms of self-determination rather than just these debates that were kind of colonial issues of intervention and territoriality. So this is a big project. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so I guess there are two elements that I think that I'm sort of focusing on right now. The first is sort of the UN. What is the UN? Um, and it's something that is sort of hanging there, actually sometimes we're being quite explicit about it in these uh, conversations. Uh, is it a forum? Is it a frame? Is it a device? If it's a device, what kind of device is it? And the metaphor I'm using right now is actually from electrical engineering. It's that of a transistor. It, when you have currents of power that come into a transistor, they then are either amplified or they, they switch. And so the UN then becomes this device for switching or amplifying currents of power, which that's what a technical transi transistor does, but it's also what I think the UN does. Um, and then we can get into how that, what, what that switch is and how it happens. Now, I chose issues of peacekeeping, indigenous rights, and resource extraction because to me, those are kind of the ultimate classical colonial issues of uh, intervention, of, um, of issues of settler versus indigenous groups, and of uh, who owns the land, who uses the land, and what is the appropriate use of that land. Um, and we can go from Locke and further back and quite a lot forward that these are kind of classic colonial issues. 
There are also issues that the United Nations takes on this kind of transistor role in updating for a post-colonial world of uh, self-determination and sovereignty. And how does that work? Um, you know, I talked a bit with peacekeeping about how, what it, how you can recast peacekeeping by thinking of the Second World War as kind of the origins for that. Um, I think indigenous rights is really crucial here. Uh, it kind of begins in the early days of the United Nations with the International Labor Organization, uh, talking about uh, labor in uh, South America and uh, sort of indigenous groups there. And it all, and then in those early ILO days, it's also about uh, resource extraction and uh, the relationship between labor and uh, resources. So there are all these issues are completely connected and they cross multiple organizational sites within the United Nations. Now, of course, we need more histories that focus on these specific bureaucracies, but I also wanted to look at issues that cross them. And uh, to do that, um, I'm, I'm going to have to be, I think, archivally creative um, because there's so, I mean, we've talked about this earlier, an issue with the United Nations is that there's so much archival material, not too little. Uh, so I'm going to be, one of the tools I'm thinking about using is uh, entity recognition. That's just the same technology behind Devon Think for those of us scholars who use that in organizing our research. And I'm going to partner with the History Lab at Columbia University, who's developed uh, extensive tools and a, and, and a database of United Nations uh, documents. They uh, actually got uh, Ban Ki-moon's documents uh, not too long ago. Um, and so this is very early days to see how this works. But it's basically what historians do in the archives already. We create profiles of the issues we're scavenging for. And the more time we spend in an archive and then we go to a new one, we bring those profiles with us. And that then becomes the lens in which we are uh, looking for material. Uh, so I'm going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, digital tools can sort of do that same kind of work that the historian already does themselves as an individual. Fascinating. Well, it sounds like a, a really, really gripping project and also methodologically very, very different and, and quite rigorous. Um, and of course, um, it really kind of gets me into um, maybe another issue that I just wanted to ask you about very finally, which is, um, of course, this kind of broader framework for all of these individual projects is about the invisible history of the UN and the Global South. So um, can you tell us about uh, an invisible history that motivates your research? Yes. So uh, my first project uh, is called States in Waiting, uh, Post-War Decolonization and Its Discontents. Uh, so that manuscript is uh, sort of in the pipeline uh, and, and, and thankfully not on my desk at the moment. Um, but one of the sort of the frame for this for that, um, for that project is the Naga claim of Nagas in Northeast India, who tried to become independent uh, in the early 1960s, tried to reach the United Nations uh, in the decade before that and since, um, and were never able to. And I look at how they, 
how they attempted the transnational advocacy networks they plugged themselves into, uh, the dynamic of global decolonization, whose epicenter at that period is on the is in is on the African continent, particularly in Southern Africa, and um, that's kind of the wider frame of that project. Uh, where I am there is how the Naga claim turns into an indigenous rights issue, and that that's the way they reach the United Nations. Um, and I'm beginning to write that up uh, in an article form uh, with uh, on, focused on the UN Working Group on Indigenous Populations, uh, which eventually uh, writes the 2007 uh, Declaration on Indigenous Rights. And Nagas are, ve are very early members to that group. And uh, one of the aspects that I found in uh, research on this was that who the Naga delegate was at this committee changed over time. And sometimes they represented like insurgent groups that were in violent disagreement with each other. Um, and I wanted, so I really want to know uh, how did they get selected? I mean, often the delegate for these kinds of uh, committees is selected by the national delegation for uh, that country. So is India uh, recommending uh, delegates from groups that allege that they need, should be independent from India? How does that work? Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in getting at the selection criteria for the delegates and then this kind of uh, disjuncture between uh, delegates who are actively uh, claiming uh, independence and the revision of existing national boundaries and a committee whose stated goal is not to do that. Mm -hmm. And the tensions inherent uh, within uh, a committee like that. So this to me is an invisible history. Uh, how do you get at the selection criteria? Uh, this isn't necessarily in the official UN documents, the official committee record, which is right right out there um, on the internet if you want to find it um, and but there's the kind of thing you can track over time over who's sitting who's at the table year to year as they meet and um, and then think about the dyna the dyna the dynamics in India and how those are changing over time and the various peace agreements and framework agreements with the Indian central government and how uh, membership to this committee is actually, a uh, benefit that uh, the Indian government can provide to its negotiating partners in Nagaland, mm -hmm. and that it's actually a symptom of a almost an invisible history of domestic politics within India that then uh, takes an international shape. Yeah, that's so fascinating the way they, all these different levels come into play and different dimensions almost at the same time, right, around particular issues. Um, so it sounds like um, a wonderful insight and we look forward to States in Waiting when it comes out and to hearing more from your, uh, your new project with Invisihist. Um, and so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.